to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Crown on the application of Hallam and Nealon and the Secretary of State for Justice. And the citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 2. And let's start with a bit of a background to both of the appellants involved in this case. Sam Hallam's case starts near Old Street Tube Station in London, where in October 2004 there was a serious incident of gang violence. The main victim was 21-year-old Esaias Kasahun, who, after moving to the UK from Ethiopia at the age of 11, was training to be a chef. The gang thought that Esaias' friend had looked at them in a disrespectful way, and so the group of more than 30 youths went out for revenge, carrying knives and baseball bats. Esaias tried to step in and stop the fight but was beaten to the ground and then struck with a sharp object. That blow went two inches into his skull, and despite the best efforts of doctors, Esaias died two days later from his injuries. As police went after the killers, nine young men went on trial for murder, but in the end only two were convicted. Bullebeck, Ringbyong, and the appellant in this case, Sam Hallam. Hallam received life imprisonment with a minimum of 12 years, but it soon became clear that this was not exactly a safe conviction. Without any forensic evidence or CCTV footage, the conviction was mostly based on the testimony of two witnesses from that night. One of the witnesses had not initially named Hallam as one of those involved, but was only told at a later date about his involvement by someone else. When that witness then saw Hallam in the street a few days later, it was only then that she put his name forward to the police. The testimony of the other witness was also problematic. He only knew that he had seen a white male with blondish hair during the attack riding a BMX and wearing a Gap hoodie. It was only later that he specifically identified Hallam after his name had been mentioned. The issue was that not only did Hallam not own a BMX, but he didn't even own a bike at all. Furthermore, such a hoodie like the one described was never found to be in Hallam's possession, and it seemed he only ever wore Nike gear. In the end, the conviction pretty much came down to a lack of an alibi, and Hallam was forced to spend the next seven years in prison until the Criminal Cases Review Commission picked up the case and took it to the Court of Appeal. Faced with the lack of evidence and a weak case, the prosecution withdrew their opposition and the conviction was finally quashed. As we move on to the second appellant, Victor Nealon, you will probably see a common theme begin to emerge. In 1997, Hereford Crown Court found Nealon to be guilty of attempted rape, but he maintained his innocence throughout. By 2004, after he had already spent seven years behind bars, he had the possibility of getting parole but this was denied because he still refused to admit that he was guilty of the crime. It was only in December 2013 that Nealon got out because his conviction was quashed by the Court of Appeal. DNA testing of clothing had not been made available at the original trial, and so it was held that the conviction was unsafe. Between the two appellants, they had spent around 24 years in prison because of convictions that did not stand up to proper scrutiny and in this case their aim was to get compensation from the government. The legal basis for this is section 133 of the Criminal Justice Act 1988, but both applications were refused by the Secretary of State for Justice on the grounds that the evidence presented to the Court of Appeal 
did not demonstrate beyond reasonable doubt that they had not actually committed the offence in question. For those of you who tuned into last week's episode on data protection offences, this possibly rings a few bells as that requirement raises a few questions surrounding the idea of a person being innocent until proven guilty. In particular, Article 6.2 of the European Convention on Human Rights states that, quote, everyone charged with a criminal offence shall be presumed innocent until proved guilty according to law. It was on this basis that the appellants launched their appeals, and although they lost in both the Divisional Court and the Court of Appeal, the case was brought before the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. The first step for the justices was to examine the case law relating to quote-unquote miscarriages of justice, as they are identified in section 133, and helpfully the 2011 case of Adams identifies four different types of scenarios that can be split into neat and distinct categories. Firstly, those where the evidence shows that the person is clearly innocent, Second, where the evidence acts to undermine pre-existing evidence to such an extent that there is no way the original conviction could stand. Third, if the evidence had been presented to the original jury, they may have decided not to convict. And finally, where some aspect of the investigation on trial has gone very wrong and so the conviction should not stand. You can tell from this that these categories are tiered, so that they go from the worst examples in category 1, where the person is clearly innocent, down to lesser situations in category 4. In 2011, the court decided that only the top two categories could be properly described as miscarriages of justice within the meaning of section 133, and that the legislation was indeed compatible with article 6.2 of the convention. The next obvious question to ask then is why the Supreme Court should now change its mind eight years later. One reason is the subsequent decision before the European Court of Human Rights in 2013 called Allen and UK, which, despite saying that there was not any violation in Category 3 cases, did hold that Article 6.2 and the presumption of innocence was engaged in these types of cases. That is not exactly a settled opinion amongst legal types, as the judges in the European Court are often seen to be much more flexible when it comes to applying Article 6 in general. Indeed, Lord Justice Burnett stated in the Divisional Court that, quote, The Strasbourg Court has long interpreted Article 6-2 in a way which takes its means well beyond its natural language and the original intention underlying it. The further steps taken in applying it to compensation proceedings of the sort in issue in this case may not be altogether surprising. End quote. You get a hint here at what the issue is. Everyone agrees that in a criminal trial, a person should be innocent until proven guilty. But the applications of Hallam and Neelan are not criminal trials, but instead civil law applications for compensation. Lord Mance, who gave the lead judgment for the Supreme Court in this case, appears to agree with this reasoning as he suggested that the real question is whether the court looking at the civil claim has gone beyond its remit by suggesting that the criminal case should have been decided differently. With that in mind, there is no basis for following the European Court on Human Rights reasoning, even as they develop Article 6 further and further with every new case. Instead, it is the original decision in Adams that should stand as the authority. 
Lady Hale builds on this and notes that, as a general rule, where the European Court would in all likelihood find a violation, the Supreme Court will follow in kind. Nevertheless, that is not the case here, because while she does think that Article 62 is in play, it is not necessarily the case that the decision of the European Court would be open and shut. Without directly addressing the criticism, Lady Hale goes on to say that it is clear that Strasbourg is still in the midst of developing its jurisprudence on this matter, so it is by no means inconceivable that no violation would be found. Lord Wilson adopted a similar line, although it has to be said that he did less to mince his words as he suggested the Human Rights Court had been, quote, swept into hopeless and probably irretrievable confusion, end quote, on this matter. In the end, five of the seven justices hearing this case reached the same conclusion and clearly established the position of the UK courts in expectation of a likely battle with Europe ahead. Of course, this means that the decision was not unanimous and to get some perspective, it is always worth examining the opinions of dissenting justices. In this case, it was Lords Reed and Kerr who dissented and mostly did so on the basis of the European Court of Human Rights decision in Allen. For them, the key elements are all present, including the quashed conviction that led to the application under Section 133 of the Criminal Justice Act 1988, which is decided upon by the Secretary of State. All of this means that it is right for the Supreme Court to follow the case law of the European Court from Allen, and there is a sharp divergence of opinion between the dissenting justices and the likes of Lord Wilson here. In the opinion of the minority, there was a clear line of reasoning in Allen, based on previous case law, which has then also been followed in subsequent cases. To diverge from this would be deliberately obstructive. Now, that in itself may not necessarily lead to a declaration of incompatibility, but one of the other elements of this case that we have not had a chance to discuss yet could well have done. In 2014, the Anti-Social Behaviour Crime and Policing Act introduced Section 133, subsection 1ZA, to the 1988 legislation, which attempted to define a miscarriage of justice as existing where the evidence, quote, shows beyond reasonable doubt that the person did not commit the offence, end quote. This is significant because it not only establishes a massive legal burden for such applications, but also requires the Secretary of State to make that call based on what has appeared before the Court of Appeal when the conviction was quashed. For the majority, this aspect of the case was of limited importance because it is new law that the European Court of Human Rights has not had a chance to consider yet. But for the minority, this was crucial towards reaching a conclusion of incompatibility. At this point, maybe the episode has stretched on a little bit more than I thought it would do, but I think I could begin to step in at this point and provide some analysis. The part I mentioned at the end about section 133 subsection 1ZA is quite serious, and although we only spent a little time with it, it should not be underestimated. To reiterate, what is happening here is that if a person has their conviction quashed, then in order for them to be eligible for compensation, the politically appointed Secretary of State has to make a decision not about whether the person was innocent or even just not guilty of the original offence, but instead whether the applicant is innocent beyond reasonable doubt. 
We have all heard of people being guilty beyond reasonable doubt, but in truth, I think this is the first time I have ever heard of innocent beyond reasonable doubt. It is this aspect of the decision that is so difficult to understand. The very nature of the provision seems in complete contrast to some of the most fundamental tenets of English law. So why are the justices of the Supreme Court prevaricating when it comes to making a declaration of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act 1998? To be honest, I haven't looked into the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights closely enough to make a proper evaluation of how consistent they are on Article 6.2, and there is clear division in the UK on this subject, as seen in this case. The key comes down to this link between a criminal trial, where a person's liberty is potentially on the line, and a subsequent civil application under Section 133 if the conviction is eventually quashed. That is a legitimate argument and would ensure that the human right does not get overly extended to other areas such as parole board hearings, but at the same time it also feels quite short-sighted. Just because a person is no longer under threat of imprisonment doesn't mean that their rights suddenly evaporate. If Article 6.2 is about being innocent until proven guilty, then that should be the starting point after a conviction has been quashed, not something that needs to be proved with the heaviest of burdens placed on those who have only just been recently released themselves. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the awesome theme music. Special thanks this week also go out to CO Wisconsin, who left a very nice review of the podcast on iTunes. And remember, if you want to help the show in a very simple way that will only take five minutes of your time, then make sure to leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and I'll read it out on the podcast episode in the future. Right, I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!